0: From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. Today, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is pushing back against a renewed effort by the state election board to investigate his handling of elections. And he's assuring Georgians that Dominion voting machines are reliable despite testimony in federal court that they may be easily hackable. We'll hear from two of his top advisors.
1: I'm Greg Bluestein. Nikki Haley returned to South Carolina with a big rally in Charleston last night. Is she prepared to continue taking the fight to Donald Trump?
2: I'm Bill Nygut. Today could be the day the state Senate acts on an anti-Semitism bill that's met numerous barriers to passage. Are things about to change?
0: Charlene McGowan and Jordan Fuchs join us from the Secretary of State's office, and our AJC colleague, Adam Van Brimmer, joins us from the coast. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia.
3: Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on.
0: Greg, you and I went from a whole lot of snow to a whole lot of rain. Now you're down at the state capitol. Uh, Bill and I are here in the studio. Um, did you make it back alive from New Hampshire? I'm going to say Yes. <laughs>
1: I did. It was a great trip, though. We were talking about how much we we, legitimately love New Hampshire. We love all that fun. And there's now a truck going by me, so I'm going to mute for a second.
0: Okay. Well, Bill, you've been to New Hampshire many times.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I have. And I always love being there. But I have to say, it's so great to have you back in the studio. Natalie and I have been here all week alone. And we're really glad you're back.
0: You guys have been keeping the snacks plentiful and the home fires burning. We're glad to be back. Um, Well, listen, now that we are all back together, we've got a big show today because we have Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger uh, currently fighting critics on two fronts right now. The state election board, which failed to pass a measure to investigate how his office handles elections, is looking for a new path to launch a probe. Now, at the same time, Raffensperger's office is in federal court where a progressive voter group is making the claim that Georgia's Dominion voting machines are hackable. And they introduced a witness last week who demonstrated the potential vulnerabilities in court. Um, Now, here to talk about all of that is Deputy Secretary of State Jordan Fuchs and General Counsel of the Secretary of State's Office, Charlene McGowan. Ladies, thank you both so much for joining us today.
4: Thank you for having us.
0: Great. Well, yeah, let's. Good here. Oh, good. Well, thank you both so much, and let's get started on uh, what's going on with the state election board because we know that there have been attempts to um, increase oversight of the secretary of state's office. Um, although he's a constitutionally elected officer, uh, something that has been uh, of importance to the state house and state senate, um, so they've empowered the state election board to do more oversight. Um, but tell us what is uh, kind of the latest update from that? Because we know that there had been an attempt to um, increase oversight that failed, but there are new efforts underway.
5: Hi, Patricia, oh, this hi. is Charlene McGowan. Um, thank you for that, that question. Um, so there are efforts in the legislature. There was a, a bill recently passed out of the Senate Ethics Committee um, that would give the state election board oversight authority over The Secretary of State's office. And our our concern with this proposal to give the board this type of oversight is that it shifts control over our elections and the certification of our elections from the elected Secretary of State to an unelected board of political bureaucrats. And we believe this is not only harmful to voters, but is also a violation of the separation of powers in the Georgia Constitution. As you mentioned, the secretary is a constitutional officer and he is elected by the people. The highest level of oversight and accountability you can have in government is being directly accountable to the people. So the voters have a right to know that the the people that who have the final say over our election results answer directly to them.
1: Charlie, this is Greg Bluestein. You wrote in a letter that is ping-ponged around the gold dome. It was kind of heard across political political lines that, that such a uh, such new powers would be dangerous um, to give this appointed board new power. Uh, if it passes, does it, is this some, something that would set up a legal battle, a constitutional battle over, over the rights and, and powers of these independent boards?
5: That is certainly a possibility. Uh, I think as you're probably aware, we get sued a lot. And so I, I could definitely foresee this resulting in some sort of, of legal challenge, which, which we think is unfortunate because, you know, we're going into a contentious election year. I think um, voters have the expectation that we're going to be focused on making sure our elections are secure and safe and that voters can exercise the right to vote rather than having uh, different state entities engage in a protracted legal battle that's just going to cost taxpayers a lot of money.
2: Um, it's Bill Nygut. Um, I Either Jordan or Charlene, you're welcome to weigh in on this. But it strikes me that what's troubling in many ways about this effort to establish this oversight board is it really is just an echo of the 2020 election and accusations among Republicans that it was rigged, that um, your boss, Brad Raffensperger, uh, uh, was an accomplice by not agreeing to Donald Trump's insistence that he find the votes uh, to be the winner in Georgia. You had one recount audit after another. The election results were always uh, uh, consistent. And so it strikes me as particularly troubling that uh, this comes along three years plus uh, later. Do either of you want to respond to that?
4: I'm I'm happy to and and look our state is trending purple and surprise you have some uh, Democrat representatives on the statewide level you also have Republicans as well and so uh, this is a swing state and if if you're not preparing for that in the 2024 cycle and, and you're living in a, a a different reality it might might be time to wake up and realize that this is a swing state and so these are the types of tactics that we are used to now whether it's in the courts or politically, and there are fringes on both sides who have tried to discredit elections in Georgia. And so we're this is nothing new. This is not a new strategy, not a new tactic. And so is it concerning? Sure. But it, it just signals to me that there are people who want an insurance policy that if their preferred candidate doesn't win, they want to be able to contest and investigate the secretary's certification of that particular election.
2: Well, you're, you're I'm glad you pointed out this comes from both sides because we'll talk about it in a minute. It's a progressive group uh, that's in federal court right now challenging the voting machines that uh, the state uses. But, but the point of all this for me is that um, this just further undermines potentially voter confidence in elections, the bedrock of the American democracy.
5: Yeah, Bill, I think you're absolutely, you're absolutely right there. And that's our fear too, is that the real harm here is that it's going to erode the trust of the voters. They're uneasy with the idea of unelected bureaucrats having so much power over their votes and our election results. And and that really is the secretary's main authority when it comes to elections. That's his constitutional authority, is to receive those results and certify them. And and so the the concern here is that that this is an attempt to interfere with that.
0: Jordan, is it the office's position that there should be no oversight by the election board of the office's operations Um, there? He's not the first secretary of state who has done things that have been controversial uh, when when other halves of the electorate have been trying to undermine those decisions. Um, What kind of oversight do you all think would be appropriate for the work you're doing or is it just the voters on Election Day?
4: Yeah, I'll let I'll let Charlene speak to that. But this is not an argument about greater oversight. This is about I I think it's a couple of things. One, there's a misunderstanding of how elections work in Georgia. Everything originates from the county level. There's a reason why we have a, a kind of a diffused system. Everything originates from the county level. So if you want to investigate elections, you would investigate the counties and take it on an individual basis. And the state election board already has the ability to do that. As far as oversight, Charlie can speak to all the ways uh, the General Assembly has had oversight over this office Um, and and not limited to going through a reelection and a primary that was highly contested where a president was coming after us. There has been uh, oversight over this office. Um, Charlene, can you speak to the specifics of those?
5: Sure, absolutely. And again, because the Secretary is a constitutional officer, our Constitution expects that he is directly accountable to the voters. Um, but his Authority is established not just in the constitution, but by the general assembly and the statutes that they pass. And so, the secretary has certain duties and powers that he's given by that, and they can limit those duties. But what the legislature can't do is set up a a board of unelected bureaucrats who aren't accountable to the people and give them authority over the secretary of state and the ability to fulfill his executive duties and functions. So,
1: so Guys, a couple I want to more. Oh, sorry, Jordan. Go, go, for, go for it.
4: Yeah, a couple more examples of those are with regards to HAVA funding. We are audited almost every year related to the spending of the HAVA funding. Um, that's I think that's a part of the Help America Vote Act. Um, and then... The other way that we are we have oversight is I believe uh, the the late speaker asked for an audit of how we spent uh, funds related to the election um, and and any any other funds, cares funds, that type of thing. And so there have been audits and overview and oversight of this of, of this office. And we're not arguing that we don't want greater oversight. And I don't think they're really arguing that that point either. What these individuals are trying to get at. I believe some of them are trying to get at is that they want to be able to successfully contest, uh, contest the next election. And because the only thing that the office really does is certify the election. Everything else originates from the county level. We are not plugging in voting machines. We are not selecting voting locations. It's a misunderstanding of the law. If you're trying to come have greater oversight over this office related to elections.
5: Yeah, and I'll just add that, um, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll just add that we also are overseen in in the courts. Um, voters have a way to hold their elected officials accountable through the courts, and, and we saw that in the 2020 election. We defended 20, the secretary defended 20 separate lawsuits and he prevailed in all of those. So that is another way that that this office um, has, has oversight is through our judicial branch
1: got it guys i want to shift subjects a little bit shift topics a little bit here uh the secretary of state is also (laughs) pressed to end runoffs in the the runoff process that we've all lived through so many times here in georgia uh the senate though has pending legislation to block ranked choice voting so how does the secretary want to end runoffs if if lawmakers aren't gonna allow one of the options at least which is ranked choice voting
4: at the end of the day it's the general assembly's decision to to, you know, pass whatever their preferred policy measure is. The point that the secretary has always been making is that if you're going to kind of fiddle with elections and require election officials to jump through all of these hoops, which they they are, things are being squeezed now. And so, for example, we have to now audit the election and, and certify by a certain time and then also prepare for a runoff. And so... Something has to give. There, there's now an issue on the ground with election officials, and they are being tightly squeezed by all of these deadlines, and, it, and it's causing some issues. And so the point that we were making, that it, this is about administration. This is not about politics or policy. That That's for the General Assembly to decide. But at the end of the day, something has to give.
2: Uh, but, Jordan, um, if the Secretary of State Is suggesting that um, runoff elections are too taxing on election offices around the state. You you say it's up, of course, and you're right, it is up to the General Assembly if they want to look at that issue to find a solution, but surely I would imagine the Secretary of State has some ideas he'd like to advance for how to do that with the legislature, yes?
4: Sure, but at the end of the day, it's going to be up to, to, to up to the General Assembly, and we're not going to get into that debate.
2: Well, so you, you so you don't want to share with us what some of those ideas might be?
0: I we're not going to jump into that debate. Okay, then let's jump into another debate, <laughs> and this may not be debatable, but there is an ongoing federal case uh, in court right now, and something that made headlines in our paper and got a lot of attention was a voting machine expert who demonstrated that the dominion voting machine could be hacked. And he did that in court with a pen and apparently a $10 fake election card, um, was able to go in and flip some votes and cast as many votes as he wanted. I was not in court, so I want to stress that this is something that I read from our colleague Mark Nisi, uh, who was in court, but it certainly is a report that has alarmed a number of our readers who, um, even those who have long felt that the Dominion voting machines were, are accurate, were accurate, and uh, have been safe. So tell us uh, your reaction to that testimony. And I think it will be Charlene who might need to answer that. Yeah, I can address that. So I I think
5: this lawsuit has been used to spread a lot of misinformation about Georgia's elections and, and a lot of the theories that the plaintiffs have have really been spun to try to discredit our elections. So we are glad that we are finally at the phase where we are in trial and we can present our case that Georgia's elections are secure. And we are showing that with facts and not theories. of the security measures that we have in place at every phase of the election before during and after and so voters can be confident that our 2024 election will be secure and again the plaintiffs yes they have presented some theories but that's all they have they have no actual evidence that any election has been compromised and in fact they admit that the elections in 2020 and 2022 were accurate so while they have their theories um that may exist in a laboratory setting where a cybersecurity expert could come up with all of these hypothetical scenarios the key issue is can they actually be executed in a real election setting and the answer is no the notion that a voter could actually go into a polling place on an election day or a day that election or that voting is occurring bypass all of the poll workers who have to check you in who collect your photo ID to confirm your identity, to be able to go up to a ballot marking device, take out a pen, start messing with the equipment, opening components, breaking seals, and start then tampering with the ballot marking device and somehow evade detection by poll workers and other voters that are in the room. We just don't think that that is a a possible scenario in a real election setting, but again, even if we do have bad actors that attempt to do things, we have mitigation measures and detection measures in place where we can detect and prevent those things. And that exists at every phase of the election cycle through our uh, pre-election logic and accuracy testing. Voters have paper ballots that are printed that they can review and verify. We're gonna be doing parallel monitoring this year, meaning that we can test the voting equipment while the election is going on. And then after the election, we have our risk-limiting audits that are the most robust in the country that would allow us to check the accuracy of the election results, make sure that the results match the, the printed paper ballots so that voters can have confidence that those results are accurate. So again, the key, and that we're, we're glad that we're able to show this in court, that we have all of these mitigation and detectors detection measures in place that mitigate all of the risks that the plaintiffs have been able to identify.
0: All right. And pushing back on that just a little bit, or I guess a follow-up question. Is there something that can be done if he really did hack that machine with a pen and what he said were some inexpensive um, accessories, is there something that can be done to make that not possible so that all of those layers could be reinforced by the knowledge that you can't do that to a voting machine, to a Dominion machine?
5: Yes, and that already has been done. The component that he was talking about is the, uh, a, a component where you can open it and access um, both the, the on-off button as well as um, access points. Those are already sealed. So again, a voter would have to get around those seals and, and break in and not only, and then have the know-how to know how the equipment functions, how to get in there and manipulate it. And I think one important thing to stress is that our equipment is never connected to the internet. And so anyone that is able to somehow gain access and evade detection from poll workers and other voters, they would be limited to being able to access one piece of equipment. They wouldn't be able to do anything that would um, affect anything else in Mm -hmm. in the voting location or any of the other uh, components of the voting system.
1: Jordan, we hear this these types of well-reasoned responses. We hear all this nuanced detail. But then we see online, especially from far-right Trump-aligned media, how this gets twisted. So how does your office work to boost trust in a system that has already been maligned by so many, not just Trump supporters, but so many people who have questions about the integrity of the election?
4: Yeah. And look, the secretary has been traveling around the, the country and taking a look at how other states are, are handling... Um, the, the disinformation that they've seen. He was recently in Arizona where they did not have Republican leadership pushing back on this disinformation. They didn't have somebody who um, kind of stood in the gap for the voters and, 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 and then also passing SB202. And so I think Georgia has a really good story to tell. We have an auditable, auditable paper ballot system, which is oddly very hard to say at 10 o'clock in the morning. And um, we have photo ID for all forms of voting. The secretary has the ability to audit any contest of of uh, the election at any given point after the election, obviously. And there's testing throughout the process. So there's testing before the election occurs, during the election, after the election. And if there is an issue with somebody's ballot, the voter has the power that they didn't have prior to 2020 to review their ballot, see if there's a discrepancy, And um, spoil spoil that ballot and re re vote. So there's multiple layers, and then recently the state has uh, been running around the state conducting uh, health checks to ensure that the the equipment works and also making sure that the counties have properly secured their equipment. And so there's a very good story to be told here, and yet. All those things sound extremely boring and unsexy. What is way more interesting is hearing that somebody used a pen to hack a voting machine. They don't want to hear about all of the administrative items that are around that machine to make sure that it is secure. So I I understand that it is uh, attention-grabbing. Journalists like to have those headlines for the clicks. But the reality is, is election administration is methodical. There's testing throughout the entire process, and voters at the end of the day can can spot errors. We also have evidence that voters are reviewing their ballots. A lot of people like to say that they're not. We conducted a live study through the University of Georgia in 2020 to see are voters taking time to review their ballots, and we found that 80% of people are looking at their ballot, and they are properly turning them
2: in. Well so. let me let me jump in though, if I may, Jordan. I, I apologize, but but <laughs> I think it's it's relevant at this moment. Um here's a very real incident, uh, event that occurs every time we go to the polls to cast our ballot. The your office you all are very fond of calling the Dominion machines ballot marking <laughs> devices. And in, in a way they are because they do create of course a paper ballot which I can review to make sure that uh, the votes that I've cast have been accurately reflected on that piece of paper. But then it's a QR code that goes into the machine, and and, and there are those people, and now the Speaker of the House, I think, is uh, introducing a measure to eliminate the QR code, because that is a, a place in the system where I think voters do have a right to be a little bit um, uncertain about how that QR code is read and how the machine processes it.
4: Sure. And so the secretary recently proposed uh, a solution to that as well, where there's now software that has been recently developed so that the the words on the page are, are what is audited at the end of the day. And so there's software now that can audit every single contest um, and using only the words on the page to, to audit that process. So that's just one more additional measure that we can have in our toolbox to ensure that the process is secure and working properly.
0: Well, Jordan Fuchs and Charlie McGowan, thank you so much for joining us as Georgia's primary election um, is fast approaching on March, to- March 12th. We hope you'll come back and talk to us again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so Thanks much. Y'all. All right, and we had to let Greg go because he was off to the Capitol to monitor the anti Semitism bill going to a vote today. So we will talk to him either later today in the show or tomorrow get an update from him. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution.
3: Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to
0: Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC's politics team. Just go to AJC.com slash newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com slash newsletters. I'm Patricia Murphy, here with Bill Nygut, and we're welcoming again to the mix, Adam Van Bremer, the AJC's Savannah Bureau Chief. Adam, how are you today?
6: Hey, good morning, Patricia, doing very well. Hello, Bill, it's always good to join my favorite columnist learned much from over the years. You Uh, have said the
0: exact right thing. Um, Well, Adam, it's great to have you. So for our listeners who are not aware, we have a new Savannah Bureau, and you are the Bureau Chief. And we did that because for a number of reasons. First of all, Atlantans love to read about Savannah. Um, We want to have a bigger statewide footprint at the AJC. And we also knew that there was a huge presidential election coming up with primaries, Democratic primary and Republican primary in South Carolina. That would be hugely hugely important um so we've got you on the task and the democrats primary is coming up sooner than the republicans primary can you sketch out the timeline for us for a little bit
6: i believe it's february the 24th is the republicans and you're gonna have to remind me on exactly when the democrats is i know it's i know it's coming fast
2: you know adam that's a really important statement you're making we had a p AP politics reporter Meg Kennard on the show yesterday, who of course is based in South Carolina, um, Mm -hmm. and she pointed out that many Democrats in South Carolina don't realize that the Democratic primary there is a week from Saturday it has caught everyone is really? uh, completely <laughs> off guard adam so you are far wow. from alone in not knowing that the is, date of that that primary. is coming up i mean
0: that is coming up <laughs> lightning fast and it strikes me it's so interesting i was in new hampshire and new hampshire democrats were mad. They were angry that Joe Biden has decided to move the first in the nation primary from New Hampshire, uh, a state which is uh, not just majority white, but almost entirely white, and has moved it to South Carolina, where he won in 2020. It absolutely resuscitated his campaign. And he also um, has said, and it's true, that the electorate in South Carolina looks a lot more like the Democratic Party's electorate that they need to be appealing to, Adam.
6: Yes, that's right. And of, of course, as the incumbent, really, I guess Dean Phillips is still on the ballot, correct? Yes. But it, for the most part, it, it's uh, the primary is a foregone conclusion on the Democratic side, I think increasingly on the Republican side as well. But I am speaking to a group of Democrats later tonight here in Georgia, but it is in a location that I imagine we will have some Hilton Head Islanders and some other South Carolinians that that make the trip over for the meeting. And I'll be curious to hear exactly what they're thinking in terms of of both the Democratic primary and and then of course, what's going on with Republicans.
2: Just uh, to stay with the Democratic primary for another moment, uh, the president will be in South Carolina on Saturday night for a major uh, state Democratic party dinner. So he's really starting to pay close attention. He was in North Charleston just a couple, few weeks ago at Mother Emanuel AME Church, uh, the site of that horrendous uh, massacre. Uh, so he's, he's paying some attention to South Carolina and, and I think Patricia and and Adam, I'd love your thoughts on this. Um, there's no question that Joe Biden's going to win the South Carolina democratic primary. Um, he's on the ballot with Dean Phillips and, um, Marianne, um, Williamson. Williamson. Williamson, So he'll win, but because it's not terribly competitive, um, The question, I think, is we're going to probably see low turnout. But what about that base that Biden relies on to win elections? Will black voters get energized to turn out for him? Younger voters, um, independent women. I mean, because you can cross over and and pick a ballot uh, in either one of those primaries. So, Patricia, I think it's going to be fascinating to see if the coalition that helped him to the White House is there for him next Saturday.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's going to be an exact tell because, as you said, it's not competitive. And because it's an open primary, anybody who really wants to make a statement about the 2024 choices um, may want to go over to the Republican primary and vote for their former governor over Donald Trump or vice versa. Um, So they have the ability to do that. But if there's any state where the Democrats should be able to get out the vote in a non-competitive primary, it's going to be South Carolina. Because not only was this Joe Biden's um, sort of uh, the the paddles of life for his sort of dying uh, campaign in 2020, um, Jamie Harrison, who is the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, is also from South Carolina. Um, uh, Jim, James Clyburn, who has been a, an incredible mentor to Joe Biden. It, he has all of his base there. He has his machine there. so if there's anywhere they can get the numbers out it's got to be south carolina so we're going to hold them to a higher standard than we would if this was just another early primary
2: absolutely
6: yeah i don't know what the motivation though is right patricia i mean i guess it's on a saturday so people they don't have to work so maybe they're going to turn out more but again uh, like you said i i'd be curious in an open primary state exactly how many democrats are are going to bother to come out and vote in a, in a primary that's already decided
0: yeah well i think if there's anything we've seen that lights a fire under democratic voters it's seeing donald trump campaign in their own state and i think there's a decent argument to make that the reason joe biden won in 2020 where was, was a huge anti-trump vote that came out along with that democratic base as well and we certainly saw in iowa and new hampshire um where there were obviously not a competitive Democratic primary out there either. The writing campaign that was uh, going on in New Hampshire, I took a look, talked to a lot of people who said they were just there to stick it to Donald Trump to say <laughs> we don't want like the worst <laughs> result ever. We do not want Joe Biden to lose here, even though he didn't bother to put himself on the ballot. So I, it's almost, I'm almost thinking that the Republican primary later, and then as we get through the, these two conventions, um, the Republican convention, the Democrat convention, seeing more of Donald Trump is what Democrats have to rely on to start to really energize not just but their, not just their base, but also independent voters to start to make a side by side comparison of these two.
6: Yes, absolutely, and it's going to be interesting in South Carolina because, as you pointed out, Nikki Haley is from South Carolina; she has won. Statewide elections there before she has been the underdog in statewide elections before, and it's just a matter of you know how how strong is that anti-Trump sentiment? I guess we're going to find out certainly by at the end of February.
2: Well, there are underdogs and there are underdogs. Uh, according to the latest polling I've seen of South Carolina, Nikki Haley is more than fifty points behind Donald mm-hmm. Trump in South Carolina. But you know what, I'm Patricia. I'm really fascinated by Nikki Haley's uh, strategy uh, that, that really began in New Hampshire, continued on the night that she lost the election in New Hampshire to Donald Trump and certainly is playing out now that she's back in her home state. Chris Christie attacked Donald Trump head on. He called a- a- out all of D- Donald Trump's failings um, and in a very loud and and to many people persuasive manner. Nikki Haley has a slightly different approach. Yes, she's now talking about him being the chaos candidate, um, uh, being too old for the job. But what she's also doing is letting Donald Trump hang himself by baiting him over and over again. And it's really been fascinating to watch. It certainly played out in Donald Trump's so-called victory speech, uh, in New Hampshire on a Tuesday night when he spent time mercilessly attacking Nikki Haley. And I think she knows how to get under his skin. And if she has any hope at all, um, it's to convince voters of the character of Donald Trump being unworthy of the White House. <laughs>
0: I Well, it, she not only knows how to get under his skin, she's currently living under his skin. She has set up a tent and is roasting marshmallows under his skin because he was so unhinged. And it the difference between his speech after the Iowa caucuses versus his speech after the New Hampshire primary um, in Iowa, he was very, um, very measured, very... Uh, almost statesmanlike, telling his competitors they had done a nice job and they ran a good race and you could feel the temperature just dropping on the anti-Trump sentiment. And then when he came out and not only just mocked Nikki Haley for her dress and for pretending, you know, he said she pretended like she won when she didn't, which she did not. She did pretend like she won second, which she also did not. Um, He also uh, brought in Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott, who was standing behind him and said, you know, Tim, Nikki Haley appointed you and now you've endorsed me. You must really hate her. And then Tim Scott came up to the microphone and said, no, I just really love you. And it was just a moment where. Um it really belittled Tim Scott. Uh, it did remind people, though, that Nikki Haley had appointed Tim Scott to the Senate. And I think that it is uh, something that is showing this uh, group of men in particular on stage trying to push her out. And she seems quite energized by it, Adam. When she was on stage in South Carolina, South Carolina last night, she was also saying he needs to take a mental acuity test <laughs> and that he needs to debate her. And she said... Uh, bring it on, Donald. Show me what you've got.
6: Yeah. yeah, you can tell that she enjoyed being back on the home turf, right, in front of people that, that she knew and people that had actually cast votes for her before. It is interesting, though, when you think about what is really the end game. I know her and her allies have said that that they almost, winning the nomination or winning enough delegates to win the nomination may be out of reach for now, but we're going to pick up as many ge- delegates as we can. So does that indicate that maybe they think that, He's going to one of his prosecutions is going to make him ineligible do they think that uh, if she can win delegates and stay in the case that she can be ready in july or not yeah bill my uh, my my
0: thought here is that both parties need a backup plan? I think that is pretty obvious. The Democrats, we know why they need a backup plan, and uh, Kamala Harris is the vice sitting vice president backup plan just in case. Uh, the Republicans on this on the other side have a candidate, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, or say that it's legitimate or not, have a candidate who has ninety one felony indictments against him. Yeah. And do they not need a backup plan also? And could Nikki Haley not be running as that backup plan?
2: Well, I'm, I mean, I'm assuming it's in, that that in fact, although they're not going to talk about it publicly, if you're our friend, Eric Tannenbladder, or co-chair of the finance uh, uh, committee for Nikki Haley nationally, um, you've got to imagine that in the background, they're talking about exactly that. She's a long shot to win the nomination, but what if somebody needs to... Step in isn't Nikki Haley the most likely uh, choice of for that? So I do think I, I do think you're absolutely right. The this, I think Adam, the unfortunate thing in a way for Nikki Haley is that um, Trump obviously looks like he's on track to win the nomination, and so what she may be doing by goading him into being his worst self is simply making him increasingly vulnerable as the general election candidate uh, in the Republican Party, because there are a lot of independent voters out there are getting a taste of Trump at his worst uh, right now. And um, it'll be interesting to see um, if she loses the nomination to him, just as the general election campaign really gets going, How the polls are going to reflect how independents are feeling about Donald Trump.
6: Yeah, all that said, if Trump's past sins have not opened your eyes and and made you figure out where you stand on Donald Trump, then I don't know that Nikki Haley goading him and making him look uh, any more unhinged is really going to affect that or not.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, also, something that he's got going in his favor is that he does have the endorsements, not just from Tim Scott, but also from uh, the governor of South Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, sure, yeah. Governor McMaster, the lieutenant governor of South Carolina. But Nikki, Nikki Haley has been quick to point out that she defeated both McMaster and the lieutenant governor in previous elections and did mm-hmm. um, passed a good bit of legislation Um Uh, to increase more transparency and oversight of the legislature in terms of their spending and their votes, pushing them to do more than just a a voice vote. So that's how she's addressing those. But I think, Bill, it does raise the question, if you don't have their support, how are you going to get South Carolinian support? That's
2: why this is such a long shot bid for Nikki Haley. Um, But I guess as long as the money holds out, she's willing to go through what's going to be a brutal few weeks for her uh, in South Carolina. Patricia, I suspect that you were too busy in New Hampshire to watch the Sunday shows. Uh, maybe you got to see some I, of them. I but, did see the Sunday shows. Oh, okay, show, yeah. so you mentioned Tim Scott a minute ago the other night, standing behind Trump. I don't hate Nikki Haley, essentially. I just love you. Um, you know, <laughs> Trump talks now about they'll all bend the knee, which is kind of a chilling expression. And, and I think Tim Scott, who has long been... A pretty respected member of the United States senator, a decent human being, conservative, of course, but a man of integrity. His giving himself over completely to Trump and the way he refused to answer questions about uh, the worst behavior of Trump on the Sunday shows struck many, many people as being incredibly disappointing that he would... In many, I think many people thought demean himself as he did.
0: Yes. Well, the uh, Trump supporters think it's wonderful, um, but Donald Trump, after uh, after Tim Scott made his remarks about Nikki Haley, um, Donald Trump said, "You know, he's a really great politician," yeah. and I think that really says it all. Yeah. Um, well, Adam Van Bremmer, stick with us. We are going to get to a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to shift to the Georgia Legislature. This is Politically Georgia. From the AJC. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's all of our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, and so much more on AJC.com, plus access to our e-paper and all of our newsletters. You can join the community by going to AJC.com start That's AJC.com slash start. And guys, we're going to shift to the Georgia legislature because I know you had Maya Prabhu on yesterday's show giving an overview of the session. And one bill that she highlighted was the anti-Semitism bill that is scheduled to go to a vote in the state Senate today. And Bill, that is one of two pieces of legislation that I believe are going to be considered in this session. The House already passed last year. The bill to add anti-Semitism to the existing Georgia law on hate crimes. So to say that to classify that and increase penalties for mm-hmm. anti-Semitic acts. There's also a bill uh, that really mirrors a Florida law that bans littering, but that is a way to get to this terrible trend that we've seen over the last year of anti-Semitic flyers being left in people's mailboxes and and their driveways, and then also. Uh, spray painted across overpasses. Yeah.
2: Um and of course last session after the House passed it by almost unanimously, the Senate slowed it down. Um there were concerns among some members of the Senate that this bill would uh in fact make criticism of the state of Israel uh uh and, and hate act. Um at but now you've got the lieutenant governor himself, Bert Jones backing this measure, and with his support, it's looking increasingly like, and we'll see today, the bill should pass. But I do want to point out one quick thing about this concern that's been expressed by a number of people that criticism of Israel could be considered anti-Semitic. The definition that's in that bill, which is from the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, specifically says criticism of israel similar to that leveled against any other country cannot be regarded as anti-semitism if you call israel a racist state trying to um in fact uh uh, eliminate the palestinians that would be anti-semitic according to this i just think that that's been a canard that's been um Put forward by the opponents of this measure.
0: Okay, so what would not be considered anti-Semitic when they when you make that distinction between criticizing the state of Israel? What's the if, if you refine to, that?
2: If you were to say, uh, as many Jews right now are saying, that Benjamin Netanyahu's policies toward Gaza uh, are um, are harsh beyond uh, humanly reasonable, that would be perfectly appropriate. It is not um, because you could make the same claim about the way in which other countries wage war against uh, 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 their enemies as well. So it's just not it's it's just an excuse in many ways.
0: Okay Adam I do feel like the types of anti-semitic acts that people have in mind when they are pushing to pass this legislation are, don't really fall into a gray area of well. Let's yes. get out the definition. You know, it is these. It's these flyers. It are, in some cases, uh, in many cases, threats against Jewish individuals, threats against Jewish families. Um, uh, but, Adam, it's a really different environment this year during this debate than it was last year during the debate, because, of course, we saw October 7th happen in Israel and then the war in Gaza follow after that. So it's a it's a much more charged environment in many ways. But then also there has been a huge outpouring in, in the Georgia legislature Um, on behalf of Jewish Georgians.
6: Yes, and it's, to me, and I've been accused of being too pragmatic, and I probably am here, but obviously a lot of the things that sparked this last year were, it wasn't directed at Israel, right? It was directed at Jewish people that live here. And what these lawmakers and some of these opponents look to is, and I'm sure we got a lot of lawyers in the legislature, right? And they're looking at it and saying, well, if this, if this definition that's so broad then it can then it can be it can be interpreted and 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 some lawsuits file in terms of of being um of anything you say and infringing on your free speech so I certainly understood last year the the pushback but at the same time it, it's time to get this done right and let's look at it from a pragmatic standpoint and not what a, li- a lawyer might be able to pick apart
0: Okay, and I, I'm gonna ask you a question that I don't know the answer to, so this is always dangerous territory. But in terms of the flyers and the uh, demonstrations, we've seen a lot of those in, in the Atlanta area and North Georgia, Middle Georgia and Southwest Georgia. I don't know about the coast, um, although I do know there's a, a sizable Jewish yes. population in Savannah. Have you all seen those kinds of flyers and, and uh, in some cases, um, uh, anti-Semitic attacks?
6: According to my Jewish friends here, no, it has not been like you've seen it elsewhere in the state but they live in a constant reality that it's it could show up tomorrow yeah and the the Savannah especially within the city of Savannah the the there's very strong cohesiveness amongst uh, the Jewish community and, and the rest of Savannah and, and all of the different faiths
2: Adam you are well aware that Savannah is the home of the oldest synagogue in the state yeah. of Georgia so there is a very sizable yeah. and important Jewish community in your city. Yeah
6: yeah Mcfree Israel is is certainly downtown a beautiful building and and a lot of history and heritage there and there's a rabbi there that is just he's the master of ceremonies at a lot of ceremonies because he has just such a good wit and he's actually I just saw him at a ceremony the other day so yeah.
0: And bill, I think Adam makes a great point. Even if something hasn't happened in a community yet, there is a pervasive fear, a very intense fear, that it could happen at any time. And a bill like this tells Jewish Americans and Jewish Georgians there is a plan if it does happen. there now, is, there, there are consequences to that.
2: I think that's so correct. I think right now the Jewish people are feeling more threatened than they have been for, for a very, very long time in this country because anti-Semitic incidents are up. At the same time, we also know that one of the complications of this bill right now is that because of Israel's prosecution of the war against Hamas, which is destroying so much of Gaza, uh, the Islamic community uh, also f- is, is not quite so certain about this measure right now and um and so there's a little bit of pushback on that side of this all of which means this has become even more complicated than it was uh before
0: okay well we're going to continue to monitor that vote down at the legislature today um switching gears quickly before excuse me before we before we run out of time I have a frog in my throat,
2: guys. I'm You're so in sorry. You've been New Hampshire. It was cold up there. <laughs> it's true. It's true.
0: Um, if you've ever driven from Atlanta to Savannah, and I bet you have, that you will see on the left-hand side the Mighty 8th Air Force Museum. <clears throat> that is a museum to the Fighting 8th Air Force Squadron. And Adam, one of the many stories that you write that I find delightful, because you tell us things we didn't know, is that there is a movie being made about the Mighty 8th.
6: Yeah, it's a series. It has been made, and it debuts tomorrow night on Apple TV. It's a nine-episode. It's a drama. Don't call it a docudrama. I got it emailed because I called it a docudrama. It is It is a, you know a produced movie by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks. So it is considered a sequel to The Band of Brothers. And it does document The Mighty Eighth, which was formed in Savannah. Of course, The Mighty Eighth was formed by the Army Air Corps before there was an Air Force. It was the original Air Force and what's special about the mighty eighth and it's a untold or not an untold story but a little known story is that the mighty eighth basically developed bomber warfare and during world war ii bomber warfare with planes flying from england deep into germany to bomb munitions factories and other areas was a real key to to the defeat of nazi germany and so this series chronicles uh, one of the crews from a bomber group that was part of the Mighty Eighth Air Force. And it debuts tomorrow night or tomorrow. I think you can pick it up any time of the day on Apple TV+. And then after the first two episodes run tomorrow, the others will post every Friday for the next seven Fridays. And as you said, they have the museum here and they're very excited. And especially there are a few people that are still living that were in the Mighty Eighth, including a, a gentleman here in Savannah um who flew 35 missions now keep in mind the attrition rate the survival rate for the mighty eighth was very very low if you flew 15 missions you were technically dead because on average crews were shot down within their first 15 missions and you have some folks that flew a lot more missions so it's a very exciting story and i encourage everybody to uh, if you're apple tv member if you're history buff go ahead and dial it up and i appreciate you giving me the time to plug it.
0: I need something new to start uh, binging, and I feel like this is going to be my new binge. Bill Nugget. Uh
2: I think it sounds like a wonderful uh, a series, actually. Especially if you're, we're one of those who loved Band of Brothers and the other, you know, series about World War II that uh, Spielberg was involved in.
0: Uh, yeah, I also, I also
6: forgot. Sorry, Patricia. Oh, go ahead. You can, you can read about this. I actually wrote about it, so I guess I should plug. You know, the work uh at ajc.com if you go to vanbrummer ajc at one of your social channels you'll see a link to it so if you want to learn more about it before you watch it and please do because we want your business Go ahead and
0: look it up. Okay, perfect. Well, yes, I highly recommend getting a a chance to check out that article um, because it is something that we should all learn more about. I feel like we are ahistorical a bit in this country. So Adam and Apple TV are going to do something to fix that. Um, Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. And if you have a question for the show, not Adam, but for our listeners, our beloved listeners, you can call the Politically Georgia hotline anytime Leave a question and we'll play it back and answer that show on Friday's episode. And on Friday, we're planning to have a very special guest here in the studio. It's our editor-in-chief, Leroy Chapman. He'll be here to answer your questions. That number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404 404-526- 526 Two five two seven. We can't wait to hear from you. Well, that's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta, or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.